I thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. Let me make sure I'm all rigged up here before I get started. I'm good? Okay. I want to thank Brother Kelby for asking me to come. And yes, it's always an amazing thing when you look back and see in the rearview mirror the providence of God and how he intends for things to unfold. Gives you confidence in the f- looking forward into the future that you can trust in the providence of God, right? Brother, Brother Kelby gave me the, the instructions on this pulpit earlier, and, uh, and I am fairly confident I will be able to navigate through the message uh, without falling backwards. But uh, I, as I told him, if I happen to disappear for a moment, uh, I am not slain in the spirit. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get up and begin again, and you don't worry about it for one minute. I, I'm confident that uh, things, things will work out. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn with me this morning to Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter three. As I read to you a really a part of a summary, a little bit of a summary of. Uh, of what Paul has been talking to Timothy about in this second letter that he wrote to Timothy, um, found in verses 14 through 17. This is what he said. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Some of you might not believe that that is the literal word of God. A survey taken as recent as July the 6th of this year by Gallup Poll shows us that only 20% of people throughout America believe that this is the literal Word of God. Now that's a recent poll, and it is a shocking revelation that as time goes on, more and more people are losing their confidence in this book as the Word of God. That's a critical thing for us, isn't it? The poll was actually taken, just so that you don't doubt the poll, it was actually taken by a man named Frank Newport, who has worked with Gallup Poll for over 30 years. He is the son of an evangelical preacher in Texas and has been measuring religious trends in America over the last 30 years. And so this is a pretty reliable poll it's not just one of those things we reach out there just to kind of get you as a, uh, uh, an attention getter in a sermon. It's reliable. 
If that poll is true, then there's possibility that some of you, by percentage, might not have confidence that this is truly the Word of God. And while the world is drifting away from their confidence in the veracity of God's Word, my message this morning is intended to challenge you to trust it with all your heart. To believe in it with your entire soul and being. And to not let anything cause you to diminish in your faith and trust in the words that God has given us in His book. The principles of God's word should be precious to our souls. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 19. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them is great reward. Do you hear those key words throughout that passage? He's talking about the value of the Word of God, more precious than gold. He's talking about how sweet it should be to our soul. And he causes me to ask even myself, do I value the Word of God this much? Do I hold it that precious to my soul? I fear that a lot of people do not. And we're reminded that the Word of God warns us, and by it we have great reward. And we're reminded of what Jesus said in the New Testament in Matthew 6 when he said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon this earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I ask you today, where is your treasure? Do you treasure the Word of God? The title of the message this morning is simply, Abide in the Word. And it comes from what Paul tells Timothy in this passage, and we'll see it as we go along. And I ask you this morning, do you abide in the Word? Or is your only contact with the Word when you come to church on Sunday? And the preacher gets up in this very elevated pulpit and reads some of it to you, or you read it as a part of the worship service. Or do you spend time daily in the Word? Do you trust it to guide you through your journey of life. I'm talking about when you make your decisions. Is your decision-making process controlled by the Word of God? When you don't understand something, do you believe in the 
whole regulative principle of the word and do you come back to it to make sure that every single thought is captured, that every imagination is captured and brought under the word of God as its authority bears down upon everything you think about and do. Do you? Do you place that kind of value on it? Well, if you do, it's going to change your life. Years ago, I joined the military and placed myself under the authority of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Any of you have ever been in the military, you know what I'm talking about. At first, I didn't even know what it was, but I had become a member of the military, and it bore down on me with its authority, right? And after learning it in time, it became precious to me. When I started, I was enlisted, and then I became an officer. And As an officer, I had to use that uniform code of military justice to bring about order among my men. It was precious to me, as the Word of God should be to us. It will change you. It will indeed guide you. It will show you how to walk along this journey of faith. The world that, that Paul is describing to Timothy is, is a, a, a world that does not embrace the Word of God as its authority. Look back at the beginning of chapter 3 and listen to what Paul says about the world at large. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incountenant, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning, but never able to come into the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men. Listen, this is the description of the world at large as Paul writes these words to Timothy. John Stott describes it this way. He says, in stark contrast to the contemporary decline in morals, empty show of religion, and spread of false teaching, Timothy is called to be different as if it might be necessary, he is called to stand alone, if necessary. And indeed, every Christian is called upon to be different in this world. We're not supposed to let the world squeeze us into their mold. We're not supposed to let false teaching cause us to become something that we're not. Remember what Romans 12, 2 says? 
It says, and be not conformed to this world. The pressures, though, that are upon us to conform are direct challenges to our beliefs and our morals, and they often arise out of an atmosphere of secularism which seeps into the church. Many give in. Often they do not even realizing why they have given in, but they do. And Paul here is going to challenge Timothy. Timothy, though these things have happened in the church, I don't want you to be like a reed that is blown in the wind. I don't want you to be like children blown with every wind of doctrine. But rather, I want you to be like a rock. I want you to stand firm. Don't move. That's what he's going to instruct Timothy to do in this passage. And so we see throughout 2 Timothy uh, this problem that Paul has brought to our attention. We see it in the very verses of this small letter to Timothy. We can go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 15 and we begin to read about uh, uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes who evidently Paul had some problem with and he introduces this exodus from the church of a number of people with them. And while we really don't know a lot about them, we know that it must have had something to do with a doctrinal difference because all of the rest of the ones he mentions have this similar thing in, in, in mind. We see in chapter 2, in verse number uh, 17 and 18, he mentions Hymenius and Philetus, who he openly says concerning the truth had erred. They had erred, saying that the resurrection had already passed. He references Janus and Jambres in chapter 3 that I already spoke about, who withstood Moses, and that's the characteristic of people who don't abide in the Word. They withstand the, against the Word. They, they stand up against it, against the one who speaks it, against the church. They, they stand in opposition to those things that they're being taught. He mentions in chapter 4, Demas, who was also a part of his entourage, who, because of his love for this present world, has now left. And then in chapter 4, he goes on to mention Alexander the coppersmith, whom he himself says has done me much evil. And as Paul goes through this, this litany of names, he's giving us the backdrop for why he is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to abide in the Word. And that's his central point. And we find it there at the beginning in chapter 3, verse 14, where I read, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. That word continue is where we get the idea of abiding, abiding in the Word. This is actually pretty simplistic but it's it's where we get the whole principle of sola scriptura you know which is the latin term for you know scripture alone you know um that phrase really speaks to the sufficiency and the and, and the 
supremacy of the Word of God alone. The people who promote that idea, you know, suggest that, that you know, everything that can be learned can be learned either explicitly or implicitly in the Word of God or by the Word of God. And that nothing needs to be added. It alone is sufficient for everything that we do in our lives. Everything that we believe spiritually. The whole counsel of God is found here in this book. And so Paul is reminding Timothy of that as he unfolds this passage. And and in this letter he's going to tell Timothy, Timothy, look, the time of my end is near. I'm about to pass off the scene. And so I'm going to hand over to you this this mantle of ministry that I have begun. and, and, And you need to make sure that you exhort people to be faithful in their duties. You need to remember to hold to sound doctrine, avoid error, accept persecution for the gospel, put your confidence in the scriptures and preach it relentlessly. And it's putting your confidence in the scriptures that we're dealing with this morning as we talk about abiding in the word. And I guess I want to say to you that same thing. Put your confidence in the Word. The Word of God. Believe it. Teach it. Preach it. Abide in it. Abide in the Word of God. This was a serious matter with Paul. We remember back in Galatians when the matter of the gospel was in question, and he said to those people, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have, or that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's how strong an opinion Paul had about the word of God, that if somebody preached it inaccurately, if somebody shared it inaccurately, they should be accursed. Boy, we should think about that when we pick it up and begin to read it and teach it and preach it. It's a very, very important thing. And so Paul makes this main point here in verse number 14 where he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, Timothy. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. The construction of that first part of the verse could actually be a a little better rendered, I think. Uh, uh, The but and the thou, which kind of parentheses the word continue, are a very personable thing in the the Greek. It's sude. It's it's more like the idea of saying, but as for you, you continue in the word. See, that makes it more personal when I say it that way, doesn't it? Because it's like when you talk to one of your children, and they're saying, well, everybody's doing it. And you look at them and say, what? Yeah, but as for you, you're not going to do that. Right? So you see, it makes it more perfect. You understand better. And that's what the Greek is, is actually saying. It's saying of Paul to Timothy here. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue. Abide in the word. That word Continue means abide, and we have a good illustration of 
of, of it because the same word is used over in John chapter 15, right? When Jesus says there in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. He was giving us that illustration about him being the vine and us being the branches, right? And, and he said, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. So we bring that back over here to 2 Timothy and we understand what Paul is saying. But as for you, Timothy, you abide in the word. Abide in the word. It means to be enjoined to it, right? Not just to hang out with it. Not just to dwell near it. Not just to have it in the same room with you. But to be so enjoined to it, like a branch is to a vine, that it, it cannot be separated. And that in your life will flow all of the principles and the precepts and the truths that come from that vine. That's the idea, that's the concept. And he gives this contrast, actually, in verse 13. You see, as he's summing up his description of those people uh, that he mentions uh, in the earlier passage from, from verses uh, 1 through 8, he says this, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now that word wax is not one that we use commonly unless you've been watching Karate Kid and you know the story about wax on, wax off, right? And we kind of understand that there's some idea there of you're adding something, right? You're putting something on when you wax a car, you're putting something on. Well, the same thing is true. A mariner would understand that as he looks up at the moon at night and the question is asked, is the moon getting full or is it, you know, going lower? The idea is if it's getting full, it's, it's waxing, right? It's adding. That's the concept of it. That's where those kind of terms come from. And what is he saying here about these people who are evil people? That they continue to add. They continue to add. They continue to add. Every time you turn around, they've got some new word. They've got some new something, some new revelation. Something that nobody else understands or knows but them. Uh, they say they got it from God. They're now adding to the word of God. But Paul warned us about them in Ephesians chapter 4 saying, as I said earlier, that they're not to be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, the cunning craftiness whereby they wait, they lie in wait to deceive. You see, the reason they add is because they have a motive, and that motive is to deceive. See, that's the contrast here, where Paul is telling Timothy, this is the motive of those people who do not abide in the word. They want to they add things. They want to challenge things. They want to do this, what, for the purpose of deceiving people. You, Timothy, but as for you, you stay right where you have been taught. And don't move. Stay right there. You see, while all the world is changing around us, if we plan to have any influence on the world, it's going to be only as we abide in the Word. 
It's only as we stand fast in the Word. So Paul continues to expound upon this in the passage by first giving Timothy a challenge that you see right there in verse number 14. And the challenge was to remember what he had learned. Listen to what it says. It says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. So what did Paul do? He simply challenges Timothy. At the end of his journey of faith, Paul says to Timothy, one of the most important things you can do is abide in the, in the Word, and, and, and I'm going to remind you of what you've learned. Right? He's going to remind him of what he had learned. And what had he learned? Well, Paul had learned a lot. I mean, Timothy had learned a lot, rather. You go back to chapter 1 and verse number 1, and Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. You know what Timothy had learned from Paul? He had learned about this promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you might say what he learned was he learned about the person of Jesus Christ. And he had learned that it was, uh, it was uh, in the Scriptures revealed that God had promised Christ to us. Romans chapter 1, Paul would write it this way. He would say, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. A promise. Do you know about that promise? That promise of Jesus Christ. We first heard about it way back over in the garden. When man had sinned and, and was separated from God and God himself took that animal with his own hands, he shed that blood and used those skins to cover Adam. And there in that garden he made a promise that he, God, would make a way to reunion, reunite, to bring back again that fallen soul, to his fellowship again. We hear about it again when, Mo, when Abraham takes his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And there he lays him down on an altar, ready to bring his life to an end in obedience to the Father because Abraham believed in a promise. A promise that God himself would provide a lamb. We hear about it again when Moses leads the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and, and they begin this ritual called the Passover. And in that ritual they take a lamb and they kill it and they take the blood of it and they put it over the doorpost and the head of the doorpost. And the Bible says when the death angel came the death angel saw the blood and passed over them, and they believed in a promise from God that that shed blood would cover them from the consequences of sin, right? We hear about it all the way until we walk with Jesus up that road, that Dio Della Rosa, and he lays himself down and becomes that supreme sacrifice for us. And as they raise him up and he draws his last breath there on that cross, having shed his blood, he became the fulfillment 
of that promise. This is what Timothy had learned from Paul, the promise of life in Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, that journey I just explained to you is a very revealing journey in and of itself because you see, the moral agency of Adam in the garden failed. And so if you just simply are trusting in morals, that's not going to be good enough. And yet the candidate, Jesus Christ, was completely moral. And yet that was not what God was looking for. If it is obedience that you're talking about, no one has ever been more obedient than Abraham to take his son to the mountain. Have you ever heard of that by anybody else? And all for him, he in obedience followed God. And no one was more obedient than Christ. And yet that wasn't what God was looking for. In the ceremonies of the Passover, no one typifies the, the, the ceremony of that Passover lamb more than Jesus Christ himself. And yet the ceremony itself was not what God was looking for. Even living a sinless life was not what God... If any of those things were sufficient, Christ would not have needed to go to the cross. You get me? So you see, it doesn't matter how good a person you are. It doesn't matter whether you obey your parents and come to church and do all those kind of things. It doesn't matter if you play the game of church and all that kind of stuff and that may be what you think it is. That isn't sufficient. It will never be sufficient to bring you into a relationship with Almighty God. What it takes is the death of Christ on the cross. The shed blood of Christ, the atoning blood of Christ is the only thing that enables you to be able to have the grace of God that he promised through the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Paul had taught Timothy. Timothy, continue in those things which you have learned. Don't forget them, Timothy. Remember those things which you have learned and don't be moved from them. So that first point was simply to challenge Timothy to remember. The second point he makes in this passage is to encourage Timothy's confidence in the Word of God by asking him to reverence it. Verse number 15 and 16, look at what he says. For that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Notice that when he says in verse number 14 to, to Timothy, Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. He also goes on and says, and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. That word whom in the Greek is plural. So it lends itself to 
point us back to chapter 1 where, where Paul himself made reference to Timothy's grandmother and his mother. And he said, you know, even when you were a child, Timothy, your grandmother and your mother taught you the scriptures. But not only does it point us there, but it points us back to verse number 10 in chapter 3 where he says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine and manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and so forth and so on. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, remember not just what your parents and grandparents taught you, which we should all be engaged in that, right? But also remember what I taught you. But then he goes further and says, but also remember what God has taught you himself in his holy scriptures. And that key word holy stands out, doesn't it? Because we understand that when he uses the word holy and he, and he prefixes that word scriptures by it, that he's saying this is solely of God. This is God's doing. God is the one who has sanctified this unto you. It's the Holy Scriptures, Timothy, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. That's the idea here. That's what he's talking about. And it helps to know. I don't know about you, but it helps me to know um, the source of the information that I'm getting uh, because that increases my confidence. Let me try to illustrate this if I could. It may seem like a silly illustration, but nonetheless, I think you'll relate. I am a person that regardless of whatever information you provide me with, I don't care where you get it from. I am not going to go to some bridge and strap some bungee cord on my legs and dive off of a bridge. I'm just not going to do it. Now, you may be one of those danger seekers I, that's fine but but you see there's no amount of information you could provide me with to convince me that my body maybe kelpies would work but mine won't i guarantee you my noggin's gonna hit the ground i just kind of believe that you see you, you and you say well but we could give you these studies we could show you these things and, and by the way oh so and so said it and all that it doesn't matter to me because the information is going to be insufficient for me to have confidence in. It's kind of the reverse of that here with Timothy from Paul. Paul is saying, Timothy, let me tell you something. You remember your grandmother and your mother taught you this, and, and I taught you this. But Timothy, this is from God. God himself is the one who gave you this. He is the one, and because of that, you can have confidence in it, Timothy. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And even though I can guarantee you, I personally will never jump off of a bridge with a bungee cord attached to my feet. I remember myself setting my daughter up on the counter at the house when she was just a little old bitty baby, just able to stand and stepping back a few steps. This is where I fall if I'm not careful. And saying, okay, jump, jump. And she shook a little, and she shook, and then, and then she jumped. And then I set her back up there, and I backed up a little further. And I said, okay, jump. And she jumped again. And I stepped back a little further. 
That may be a crude illustration, but it's kind of the way it is with God. God has embraced you. He has held you. He has lifted you up. And he's placed your feet there. And then he stepped back and said, Jump. I got you. And Paul said, This book is the information that gives you the confidence to trust that. To trust him. If you stay in this book, abide in this book, you'll never have a problem jumping when God says jump. Not at all. Why? Because he is God. He is God. I mean, even in this passage, he reveals that the source is God. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That, 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 that word inspiration there is the Greek theonoustos. It, break it down as the word theo, God, new, which is, you know, breath or, you know, breathed out. It's, it's the idea of air. It's, you know, it's spelled P-N-E-U. It's the idea of, of something being powered by air. You know, like if you get your, your, your you know, tire changed at, at Walmart and they use a wrench, right? It's a pneumatic wrench. They, isn't that what they call it? Pneumatic. What's that word new mean? It means air, powered by air. That's what this is. This is the, the word of God. It is breathed out by God and it is powered by him right it is his word it is functional it is practical it is like a a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path it is settled in heaven it is my guide I can trust it and that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy here you see it can provide you with doctrine, teach you as a person how to live the Christian life. It reproves, that means it convicts you when you are wrong or when you need to be uh, uh, reproved. It gives you the evidence that you need if you bring yourself up against it. It corrects you, straightens you out when you're on a crooked path so that you walk circumspectually, meaning a straight line rather than a crooked line. It instructs you in righteousness. It provides you with all of those things. And it does so for a purpose. And that's the third point and the final point that Paul makes here. And that's found in verse number 17. He's saying it is complete and it is reliable. In other words, you can rely upon it, Timothy. He says in verse 17 that the man of God may be perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And here's where I have a little bit of complication with the translation of the word perfect. Often the word perfect in the New Testament might refer to maturity or things of that nature. And, and I get that. Sometimes it's even translated here as adequate. But here there's a different thing going on. The Apostle Paul has been talking about holy things. Things that have been made sacred by God. The scriptures is one of it. But guess what else? When you bring Jesus Christ into your heart, guess what? You become a sacred thing too to God. He has placed in the depository of your heart this treasure of his word. And so because of that, God is expecting more than just the casual offering 
I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, right? That's what he's expecting. You see, the language here in this passage is actually looking all the way back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, when they brought that lamb to offer him as a sacrifice, and they would, and they would say that lamb could not have spot, blemish, or scurvy, or any of those things, but it had to be, and the word is used, perfect. You see, what God's talking about here is for the man of God to be acceptable to God. He's got to have something more than just himself. He's got to have the word of God in him. He's got to abide in the word. That's what he means by perfect here. Now, I know that's the case because in chapter 2, it supports that. He says, in every house, in a great house, verse 20, but in a great house, there's not only a vessel, or vessels of gold and of silver and of wood and of earth and some of honor and some to dishonor. He goes on and he says, but if a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. See, that's what he had told Timothy earlier. And now he's coming back and saying, and how do you get there? By abiding in the word. That's how you reach that place of being usable by God, of being acceptable unto God by abiding in the word. Well, that's the challenge that Paul gives Timothy. And it's a challenge that is worthy of us remembering and rehearsing again and again in our day as well. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you could be in that percentage of that 80% of people who do not believe that this is the literal word of God. But I hope today to encourage you that it is the literal word of God and you can have confidence in it if you'll just abide in it. It will guide you, it will lead you, and it will most importantly help you to show others how they can come to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. And so I challenge you today, abide in the Word. Heavenly Father, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to come today and present your Word. And I pray, Father, that the things that we've shared today will be meaningful and, and practical to your people. And Father, I pray that that these words that we have shared would, would be taken by your Spirit and just, Father, distilled into the heart of each person that's here today. And that they too would see the importance of remembering what they had learned and from whom they've learned it. And that, Father, they would, they would also respect and have reverence for your word. And that, Father, they'd ultimately rely upon your word in everything in their lives. Father, the Bible says, you said it, Paul said it, that 
this scripture is able to make one wise unto salvation. And so I'm praying also today for the lost, that today, by your word, they might come to understand the great need they have for the person of Jesus Christ, his atoning work on Calvary, Father of his love and his mercy, and the grace that you promised through him. I pray, Father, that you'd bring that grace to them. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in the things that we've said, and that, Father, we would be better because of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.